Our scripture reading this morning is from uh, Matthew chapter 3. This is on page 808, if you're following in the Pew Bible. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he was, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Thanks, Justin. Let me pray for us once more now. Gracious God, as the Bible uh, has been read and is now taught to us, we pray that you would deliver us from unbelief and disobedience. You'd help us to exhort and encourage one another that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We pray that you would produce in us the fruit of your spirit for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1987, uh, Toby, Michael, and Kevin uh, met one another at a university, a Christian university, and shortly after doing so, they got together and they formed uh, a Christian rock rap sort of band, and they released their debut self-titled album called DC Talk. If you grew up in the 90s like I did, uh, you know what it was in the subculture of Christian music to have DC Talk singing things that you had never really heard before in Christian circles. Uh, they also managed, in terms of uh, prominence, to make it on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. They snagged a few Grammy Awards. Uh, they were, at least in some ways, uh, had their sort of day in the sun. In 1995, their uh, popularity went next level when they released an album called Jesus Freak, which managed to make it to number 16 on the Billboard 200. 
And in the title track of that album, they drop a few lines about John the Baptist, which uh, I still think of to this day. And having spent the last two weeks in Matthew chapter 3 thinking about John the Baptist, and some of you are smiling because you know right where this is going, um, I said, I think we're going to have to drop in some of those DC talk lyrics with all of its corniness. Uh, I'm not going to rap it. Don't worry about that. But, uh, but, but here it is. They sang this. There was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume that there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locusts he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. In 1990s, these lyrics were amazing, let me assure you. <laughs> they do uh, happen to actually capture for us pretty well what a unique figure John the Baptist was. For starters, he, he's got a nickname, John the Baptist, the baptizer. Uh, they also point to the uh, sort of unusual nature of the things that he wore, uh, the desert food of a, uh, that he ate of the common desert dweller. He was also, on another side, a really highly committed religious man, but I think in many ways he was kind of like anti-establishment in some ways because when he takes up his, his teaching ministry, his preaching ministry, we don't find him inside the Jerusalem temple. I think because he had recognized that it had been uh, corrupted and therefore he said, well, I'll do things differently. And he shows up by the Jordan River to begin his ministry. Now, the boys from D.C. talk uh, saying that the words that John spoke made the people assume that there wasn't too much left in the upper room. And uh, undoubtedly, there were some who thought that John was a bit out of his mind. Maybe he was a little much. But if that were so, they were most decidedly in the minority. Just look at verse 5 and see what it says. That people from all over the Jerusalem metropolitan area were going out to hear John and to be baptized by him. This was kind of like John's uh, big symbolically spiritual thing that he did. He, he baptized people. As a Christian church, we, we baptize people who become followers of Jesus. In fact, when we purchased this building, we had built into this very platform a small pool that can be filled with pleasantly warm water, so that we might have a space to perform this Christian practice in which we pronounce a, a convert to be buried in the likeness of Jesus' burial and raised in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection. Christian baptism is it's a good thing. It's an important act of obedience for those who are followers of Jesus. Having said that, let me now say that if we're going to really get what's going on here in Matthew chapter 3, uh, we need to separate John's baptism from the practice that we have as a Christian church. Uh, these things are not one and the same. I think that'll become increasingly obvious as we go along this morning, but I just thought it would be helpful to make that distinction clear on the front end of things. John isn't performing Christian baptisms. He's doing something different. So, so don't try to make sense of this story as you get a little uh, view of the baptism pool behind me. He's not performing Christian baptisms. He's instead doing something preparatory for the ministry that Jesus is about to begin. And in that way, John has a very important part in the, in the origin story of Jesus. That's what these first three chapters of Matthew's gospel are about, the origin story of Jesus. And we were reminded last Sunday that John plays in a very important part in these things because his life is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
His life unites the last book of the Old Testament with the first book of the New Testament. He, he links them together so that the storyline continues to unfold comprehensively. And in short, his role in life was to prepare the people of God for the ministry of Jesus that was soon to begin. And he got people ready by, number one, preaching about the kingdom, which is what we looked at last Sunday, and number two, baptizing people in the waters of the Jordan River. And that's how we're going to look at these verses in two little scenes. Verses 11 and 12, we have John's baptism of the Jews. And then in 13 through 17, we have John's baptism of Jesus. So first of all, let's see what's going on here with John's baptism of the Jews. For, for starters, for John to be baptizing his fellow Jewish people was something new and astounding. That's why he got the nickname John the Baptist. You see, uh, Jewish people were familiar with the practice of baptism as it's what Gentile people went through if they converted to the Jewish faith. So it was a, a symbolic act of entry into a new community. And it was a, a way in which they were said to be born anew for like their, their Gentile impurities to be washed away. So baptism was common as a standard practice for Gentile converts. But what was shockingly new was that it was faithful Jews who were being baptized by John in the river. When it came to like water rituals for the Jews, what was commonly taught in practice was the importance of using water as a ritual form of purification to maintain holiness. So if you take an hour this afternoon and read through the book of Leviticus, you'll read the endless ways in which a person might become ceremonially unclean and impure. And since uh, purity was a requirement of holiness, the people would uh, use water that was stored in large purification pots to symbolically, you know, wash away their, their impurities. And so it was that a faithful person would uh, repeatedly go to the waters of purification to cleanse herself of her ceremonial impurity. And that's quite different from what John's doing. His, baptiz his baptizing is a, a one-time washing, not an ongoing act of repeated purification. That's distinctive number one. Another distinctive about John's baptism was that it wasn't self-administered, which was also different from the typical exercise of Jewish purification. If a man became ritually unclean, he would go to the waters of purification, he might say a prayer, and then he would wash himself. But that's not what's going on here in the Jordan River. John himself is conducting the baptisms. So this isn't something you did for yourself. It was something done for you and, and to you. The last distinctive I'll mention about the uniqueness and newness of John's uh, practice of baptism is that it's an act of repentance that followed a confession of sin. That, that's what John himself makes clear in verse 11. Quote, I baptize you with water for repentance. His baptism was an act of repentance that followed confession of sin. In other words, John's baptism was in response to the, the people's baptism was in response to the things that John had been preaching about the kingdom of heaven in the previous verses. And in his preaching, uh, one of the things that he was primarily doing was drawing a, a line in the sand and pointing out to his fellow countrymen and women, and particularly to the religious leaders, he was saying to them, hey, listen, we're thankful for Abraham, for our religious faith, our religious history. 
But your ethnic heritage, we might add to that, your religious affiliations will not save you from God's wrath and judgment that is to come. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so John urged them to repent, which, as we said, is to admit to God that you deserve his judgment, but that you're pleading for mercy and wanting to live in a new way. Repentance is a very plump word. It means lots of little things that are hard to pull all together, but maybe it helps to think about like this. Part of repentance is to feel uh, true remorse, Remorse for the ways in which you've, you've used people, the ways in which you, you've hurt other people. Uh, repentance is it's to be grieved that you've, you've lived your life in rebellion against the God who made you, that you've been living in self-reliance without any reference point to Him. And that has potentially resulted in your life being full of hurt, brokenness, regret, guilt. Repentance is a, is a big turn. Maybe think about it like this. Uh, Christian repentance isn't like um, merging your life into the flow of traffic on, on the highway. It's actually to recognize and see that you've been driving into oncoming traffic and that you need to do a U-turn. It's to recognize, if you'll think about it like this, that the rush hour of God's purposes and judgment are headed toward you. And that you need to change the direction of your life and line up with what he is doing. It's not lost on me that this idea of God's judgment uh, coming toward you and and for you is a a non-starter in many conversations in our contemporary moment. People hear about God's judgment and they say that's unloving, that's, that's offensive. I'm guessing that John uh, got that sort of feedback from his sermon in verse 7 when he warned the religious leaders that they weren't safe but that there was wrath about to come toward them. And he probably ruffled some feathers when he used that that farming imagery in verse 12. He talks about this this winnowing fork, this uh, ancient farm tool that was used to knock down wheat. Followed by that, the wheat would be lifted up so that the chaff would be separated from it which was a way of John figuratively saying that there's going to be a separation from the repentant and the unrepentant with the fire of God's judgment falling upon the unrepentant. While for those who repentantly turn to God, that there will be a place of safety for you, if you will, in in the barn of his mercy. You, You will be hidden away in the day of wrath to come. Like I said, the uh, language of separation and judgment, it can be pretty unpopular for most people. But do you know to to whom it it, it doesn't feel offensive? It's the person who has uh, had something awful happen to him. Like he's had his identity stolen. Just totally ruined his life. Someone, uh, the nefarious actions of someone else has, has just compromised everything for him. When that happens, you can imagine what it feels like. You feel vulnerable. You feel angry, you feel exposed, you want the wrongs to be made right. You want civil and legal intervention, and probably on some level, you want cosmic and divine intervention. So what was once maybe uncomfortable to talk about is actually what you now demand. It's also what you need in order to be able to move forward in life. The the same is true for the person who's been uh, hurt and, and violated. She was assaulted, but her perpetrator remains untouched. 
She wants justice. She deserves justice. You see, friends, we've got a bent for justice built into our humanity. We all sense it from time to time. God has placed it within us, a keen sense of right and wrong. We try to squish it down, but it's there. It's why you get angry when someone else does something to you. You don't go, oh, no big deal. No, you're stirred with all sorts of inside things. You, when something is taken from you, you want it returned. When someone violates you, you want them to be dealt with in a just way. It's, it's interesting that the modern notion of self-determined uh, morality, well, that may be good for you, but it isn't for me. It, it, it really goes out the window when someone has been personally wronged. That all goes by the wayside when you desperately need rightness and you need judgment, you need help from someone outside of yourself. You see, we've got a bent for justice built into the framework of our humanity because the God who made our humanity is himself a being of justice. And John the Baptist's preaching pressed into the hearts of his listeners the urgency of confessing to God that you and I deserve his judgment. Because while what you have done or did may not have yet been found out, God your maker knows, and he will hold you accountable for it. Or maybe you have been found out, and you're just full of regret, and you're just devastated. Well, friends, uh, repenting to God for what you did is the way for you to experience pardon and peace. As a wise man once put it, sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. You can face the awfulness of God's judgment by yourself, or you can plead for God's mercy and forgiveness. You can repent. You can turn your life in a new way toward God and his purposes. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. In some way, that's, that's what John was on about here. And the way that people signaled that they got what he was saying was to be baptized by John as an expression of belief and an expression of renewal. In other words, to be baptized by John, it was like to renounce your dependence upon yourself and to rely entirely on the mercy of God. That's what's going on with John's baptism of the Jews. And just before we move on, uh, notice in passing, here's how I was saying what John's baptism is doing is different than Christian baptism because he says in verse 11, what I'm doing here is really quite temporary. Because he says that his baptism of water was going to be superseded by someone else's baptism. Someone greater than him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Someone who would bring a blessing, a new blessing to the lives of the repentant. And this one whom John speaks of, who is of greater importance than him, is a reference to the Lord Jesus, who just happens to show up at the Jordan River, and he asks for John to baptize him. And that gets us to verses 13 through 17, and John's baptism of Jesus. Now, uh, what happens here is uh, incredible, and on more than one level, it's hard to fully understand. There's one commentator I read this week who said, uh, quote, there has always been a cluster of problems surrounding this act of Jesus. The, the first, I think, being obvious, the more that you reflect upon it, which is, why, why was Jesus baptized by John? After all, John was summoning, summoning people to repentance. 
And Jesus, God's son, had no sin of which to repent. So what's he dealing here with John, asking for him to do this since he doesn't need this baptism of repentance? John seems to feel this point of tension too. Because he says to him basically, hey, how about we do a little bit of a switcheroo here and you baptize me? On, on some level, I don't know if, I don't think that John actually got a full understanding of Jesus' messiahship. But you're glimpsing some sort of way in which he recognized something different about Jesus. Perhaps he had a, a greater morality that he could sense within him. And he says, no, you and I both know, Jesus, that it would be better if actually we switched places and you were the one immersing me. But Jesus won't take that for an answer. He presses him further in verse 15. He says, no, I need you to baptize me because it will fulfill all righteousness. That's another one of those tricky uh, phrases. Uh, lots of people have tried to unpack what it means, and there's good explanations out there. You can read it for yourself. I'll, I'll just sort of cut to the chase and tell you what I'm inclined to think. I'm inclined to think that Jesus is saying that this act of baptism will serve to be a form of needed representation, which is to say that in his baptism, Jesus is identifying himself with you and me in our humanity. Therefore, take, therefore, thereby taking upon himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect savior, so that he might be a perfect substitute for us. Or as Ironside put it long ago, he who was to take the sinner's place came to be baptized by John that he might thereby be identified with sinners for whom he was to lay down his life. His baptism, if you want to think about it like this, was uh, the beginning of what theologians call Christ's active obedience. His active obedience, meaning his perfect obedience to all of God's commands and decrees, which was also matched by his passive obedience, his submitting to death on the cross in our place. But just take two minutes with me so that I can just uh, flesh out for us how wonderful Christ's active obedience is for us. Because those two words, active obedience, they burst with hope and promise for the Christian. Okay, here, here's what I mean. Think about the, the ripple of wonder that washes over you when you watch one of those gymnasts at the, Olympic, at the Olympics get, get a perfect score. Perfection. Well, if you think about Christ's act of obedience, you can think about it like this. How much more should we marvel that the God-man who waged not just an exercise of gymnastics, but a lifetime of warfare with uh, sin and the evil one, and he did so perfectly. If you like, his life got a 10. Jesus' active obedience. He never got angry he never dropped a swear bomb. He never lied. He never cheated. He never bragged. He never gossiped. He never lusted. His perfectly lived life is his fulfilling of all righteousness. It's the assurance that God's acceptance of you as a Christian isn't ultimately based on your obedience. You are safe, if you like, in the record books of God, even in view of your faults and failures, because Jesus was perfect in your place. You very much want his act of obedience on your behalf. Not only that, but if you're a Jesus follower, then his obedience for you brings you to a status of being not only forgiven, but being wonderfully accepted and loved. So it's not just that you escape God's eternal judgment— 
but that God now opens his arms up to you just like he would open his arms up to his own son. So you're not just sort of like forgiven and kept at bay. No, you're, you're, you're brought close. You become one of his beloved sons and daughters. You become one who he looks at you in Jesus and he says, I am well pleased with you. Which is the very phrase that echoes from heaven down onto this scene as John baptizes Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's this incredible moment because you, and you get a little glimpse of our Trinitarian God. Father, Son, Spirit, one God in Trinity, the Trinity in unity. Father, Son, Spirit, each being a distinct person, and yet at the same time, they're united as one. Uh, their glory is equal, their majesty co-eternal. The, the mystery of the Trinity is revealed in this baptism as, as God the Father delivers this testimony of sorts that this is my son and I am well pleased with him, which is not only this amazing announcement on his behalf, but you also recognized, if you see it within the larger story, that God saying these things is the breaking of his silence. Remember last week? For 400 years, God's people haven't heard from him. He breaks his silence, and what does he say? Let me tell you about my son. God speaks, and he speaks about his son. Now, any Jew who knew the Old Testament, and most certainly John did, would know that this first part of the Father's declaration, this is my son, uh, comes from Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is where, the, is where God declares of his Messiah that he would give the, the nations to him. The, the spiritually knowledgeable Jew would also recognize that the second part of this testimony from heaven, with whom I am well pleased, uh, pulls upon language from Isaiah 42. And that section in Isaiah is this really famous portion about how one day God's suffering servant was going to come to his people and atone for Israel's sins. And if you take those two references together and you see them as one with all the backdrop to them, we recognize that here in the words of God the Father himself, we have the message of Christianity condensed into a phrase. Jesus is the Son of God, the King. His work is to save his people from their sins and usher in a new kingdom. So there's this, this voice of God the Father, and then we've also got the Spirit of God who descends like a dove and he rests upon God the Son as he comes up out of the water. Uh, this being a symbol of, of the Spirit anointing Jesus for his ministry as he's being presented to the Jewish people as one being identified for God's purposes. He's being anointed for ministry, much in the same way that the kings of the Old Testament were anointed for ministry by a prophet of their day. Think Samuel to Saul. Think Nathan to David. Think Isaiah to Hezekiah. So it is through John the prophet that Jesus is being assured and others are beginning to perceive that he is indeed the longed-for king who has been equipped by the Spirit of God to bring in the kingdom. All this to say, the, the baptism of Jesus is this really pivotal point in Matthew's story as we see, think about all these couplets, promise, fulfillment, 
prophet, king, heaven, earth, water, spirit, father, son. It's this transcendent moment that Matthew is wanting us to see as readers that right here and now is this testimony that God rules, that God reigns, which is wonderfully comforting, but is also startling because he sees and he knows. He sees and he knows all that happens down here, which is exactly why John the Baptist was preaching about this need for repentance. His words still come to us. They press upon us the urgency of confessing to God that by nature you have turned away from him and you deserve his judgment, but that you're pleading for mercy, that you're wanting to live life in a new way which becomes possible and a reality through the Lord Jesus. Because the wonder of the Christian message is that the God who will judge us justly has mercifully intervened into our circumstances by having his innocent son, the Lord Jesus, take our place. As we'll see later on in Matthew's storytelling, how Jesus died as our substitute, as the Father laid his judgment upon his son in order to save his sinful people. Just, just settle that image in your mind. The Son of God willingly dying in your place to save you. And then see the Father raising Jesus from the dead, assuring us that he did what he set out to do. See the gospel with a little glimpse of the way that it's about God bearing his own judgment for our evil. If you're a Christian, you are now declared forgiven and loved not because God is like this cosmic nice guy, but because Jesus was judged for you. Which means then that what the Father said to the Son, he now looks at you and he says to you, and with you, I am well pleased. He's pleased because in Christ, your judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. Christ already bore it for you. Aren't you glad that he identified with you in your humanity? That he's your representative? That he fulfilled all righteousness for you? That he succeeded where you failed? And that he gave himself to atone for your sins? Because he did. Judgment Day no longer, fears loom, uh, no longer looms fearfully in front of you. It was satisfied at the cross of Christ behind you. Your Judgment Day has been moved from the future to the, to the past. Has it? Has it? If so, what better news could there be than that?